we do have limited time on this world so let's make the most of it and certainly i think let's get to the latter part of our life with a bucket load of money so we can live the full width of it just not the length of it Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today's show is a zippy zappy affair. We're going to dig into building for profit, how to get out there in this big bad world of real estate and find yourself a great property to build. The genre of project homes or house and land packages has been around in Australia since the 1970s. And I tell you what, Many Australians have made a lot of wealth out of fundamentally getting themselves what is commonly known as a house and land packages. Sometimes they get a bit of a bad rap. Today, I want to myth bust the good, the bad, the ugly of buying a house and land package and how you can fundamentally build for profit in different locations. Today shows a bit of a sad affair for me. I've made the horrible decision to actually euthanize my dog tomorrow morning yes i'm at peace with it it's taken me all day to come to this conclusion but poor old hannah who's been with me for 15 years can no longer use her legs she can't get up and down the stairs she's got chronic asthma she bumps into walls and yesterday i got home and she was basically roly-poling down the stairs and uh hurting herself quite badly so For me, this morning has not been fun and uh, I don't want to be accused of not doing the tough episodes. Today is a tough episode for me emotionally, but real estate is something I'm ultra passionate about. So certainly evens, I guess, out the way I'm feeling at the moment. But good old Hannah, she has been my favorite dog and I've had a few. But Hannah has been with me for 15 years, so we're going to tribute this show to Hannah, the dog. By the way, when I had Hannah, uh, I was basically dating a woman, and we dated in this like crazy relationship that was like, uh, there was it was feisty, it was it was emotional, and it lasted for four days. On day four, on the morning of day four, we went out to Yaguna to the. Uh, to the um, uh, to the dog shelter, and we found Hannah. And by that afternoon, Hannah's mum had basically left me, and I have been with Hannah ever since. So tomorrow morning um, is not going to be fun for me. But hey, you're coming on this ride with me, so I don't think it's it's worth talking about the tough stuff as well. And when I think about um, my life and, and some of the tough decisions I've had to make. Hannah is a big part of my family, um, but I know the only reason I've been keeping her going so long is rather selfish. It's really about me, not about the best, um, best situation for her. In other words, I'm kind of like letting my ego control uh, a situation which is naturally unfolding. And as we know, today we can all be propped up by drugs, Um, And I don't know if that's the best life for people. I've made me think about my own life. And uh, when I get to a much older age, whether 
I really want to live those golden years propped up on um, painkillers and drugs. Certainly a lot of Australians and Kiwis end up in this place. So I think property investment's really important. And I think the lesson of Hannah, the furry dog, is uh, a lesson for us all that we do have limited time on this world. So let's make the most of it. And certainly I think let's get to the latter part of our life with a bucket load of money so we can live the full width of it, just not the length of it. Today's show, Building for Profit, I am so sorry if I just depressed you. Don't be depressed. I'm not depressed. I'm at peace with it. Hannah's going to a better place. Let's kick off the show. Tell you what, when it comes to real estate, houses, of course, are an amazing way to create capital growth. And I think when you map out a portfolio, it is always so useful to put housing in it. It's not always possible just to build a portfolio of houses. And in some respects, apartments close to the city are great for rental returns. They can be absolute little cash cows. But houses, of course, are something which always tend to perform in the marketplace. They tend to go quite well in the good times and the bad times. So I think it's really important to understand how to get out there and be part of the new housing marketplace. Of course, over 2020 and into 2021, we've had a housing boom. Every millennial and their dog has jumped out of the rental pool to get out and about and buy a new property And a lot of that is centered around the house and land communities, the house and land market. So what are the good bits, the bad bits? Today, we're going to explore house and land, what it actually is, the pillars of making money out of house and land. Of course, understanding where land fits into our property portfolio and our urban planning. After all, today's show is the urban property investor. So it makes sense to teach you a little bit about how land connects to the urban world. And I can tell you, not all land is good. There is plenty of land which is dysfunctional. It doesn't connect to our urban roadmap. It's off the grid. And fundamentally, it really creates a dysfunctional society. In fact, there have been studies that the wrong land community, which is disconnected from our city realm, can lead to higher rates of obesity because of the travel time to get there, higher rates of social disorder, dysfunction, uh, and higher rates of things like divorce. So where we find good land and where we find bad land is something I think worth teaching. When it comes to houses, there's a few dynamics around getting housing into your portfolio. You can do things like buy an older established property. When you buy old or established, you've got to understand there are some capital improvements you probably need to factor in in your purchase price. But old established in inner and middle ring suburbs can be absolutely great ways to make money. The problem, of course, with old established is quite often it's very expensive right now. It might be old, fantastic looking architecture and people pay a pretty penny for it. Think of all those terrace houses in the inner city today that once were considered 
ghettos, which today are considered hoity-toity properties. The other way to look at housing is greenfield house and land communities. Land communities quite often found at the edge of our city. We're going to discuss that today. And we're also going to discuss infill areas, land which uh, is fundamentally in the middle ring of our major cities and activating that land and building on it. Great way to potentially make money. Now, I'll tell you what, when it comes to listening to this podcast, I just want to remind you quickly, put me in 1.5 speed, put me in double speed, play me quickly, get your life back. Uh, you never know when you're going to get euthanized like my little Hannah. So I tell you what, today in our big cities, we kind of live in three different rings. The inner ring, the middle ring, and the outer ring. And in each area, there is housing. And in each area, that housing has different nuances to understand to make sure that if you are buying on the city fringe, you know what you should be buying. If you are buying in the middle ring, you know what you're actually buying. Remember, the inner ring, inner urban, maybe up to 10 kilometres from the CBD, depending how big it is. The middle ring, maybe 10 to 25 kilometres, uh, depending on the city. Sydney, much bigger, 10 to 40 kilometres. Uh, and the outer ring is, is fundamentally that, the edge of the city, and quite often, when we think about house and land, we do commonly think of the edge of the city. Remember, this genre of building house and land date back, dates back a long time. In fact, as you drive out of cities, it's very common for you to unknowingly drive through former house and land communities that date back now 50 years you go past them, they were land subdivisions, people built houses on them, and they might just have that little sort of look of a project home, but because they've aged and the street has grown old, all of a sudden you quite often think of them as established housing. But yes, once upon a time they were house and land communities. So the first type of house and land community is that urban edge community sometimes known as Greenfield. And really what I refer to in that is areas which were up until recently fundamentally farming areas. If you go to them, it's very possible even to see houses being built next to a cow or something like that. And that's just what is common in Australia. We still like this idea of urban sprawl, that people can get the great Australian dream, even if they have to go 45 kilometres from the CBD, it is still available. And when you think of the urban edge prices of real estate today, the edge of Sydney, entry level, probably about $800,000 for a decent home. Edge of Brisbane, you can still shop around that $500,000 for a brand new home. And edge of Melbourne, really circa $600,000 for what would be a really good property to build. So it is uh, a popular reason as to why people drift further and further out. It is fundamentally driven by affordability. Sometimes 
we label house and land edge communities drive until you qualify. In other words, get in the car and don't stop until you can fundamentally afford something. So we need to be very, very wary of understanding what is happening on the urban edge because obviously it is driven by affordability and in some respects, when we think about what is occurring in society with the great inequality divide, we need to make sure if we're going to buy on the urban edge that we're buying a really, really good piece of land and a good land community. So I tell you what, I think we should get into some tips around choosing a really good piece of land at the urban edge of our cities. Remember, what we do not want is disconnection. We do not want to buy in a community which is not mobile, which is fundamentally um, way too far away from everything. People will not see value in it and sometimes the only reason people go there is, well, they're driving till they qualify. Remember, a lot of society is broke today. So we want to make sure if we're buying on the edge of the city, we're actually buying in what is known as an aspirational marketplace. Now, I think understanding money and understanding real estate is really important. I label marketplaces, aspirational marketplaces, affordability marketplaces, and discretionary marketplaces. Kind of like the three types of money in this world. Discretionary marketplaces are suburbs where, you know, people just, you know, you here on the weekend, Bob just paid $300,000 over the asking price. It's a discretionary neighbourhood. People are paying more for that neighbourhood. They've got money in their back pocket. They're not worried about home loans, LVRs. They're not like an investor. They don't think like an investor. Aspirational suburbs are very similar. People aspire to live there and pay more to get in. And then you've got these affordability zones where as a property investor, we just need to double check that we're buying in the right pocket so we can, well, do well. And there is nothing stopping an affordable marketplace becoming an aspirational marketplace. And that's really what we're looking for when it comes to urban edge land. So I have eight concepts I teach. I said that weird, didn't I? I have eight concepts I teach when it comes to urban edge land, what you should look for. Tip number one, land size, land size, land size. Obviously in real estate, we often teach location, location, location. But at the edge of the city, we want land size, right? Why do people move to the edge of the city from inner urban areas? They move there for space. And I think one of the biggest mistakes I see a lot of property investors do is they go to the edge of the city and then they go cheap thinking that uh, they're doing the right thing. And of course, the majority of the demographic is moving to the edge of the city for a larger block of land to build a larger home. So I think the first rule to understand is land, right? And the further you go out, you should be looking for a bigger block of land. And today, I, I see land sizes diminishing. I mean, we are down in Sydney to, uh, you can title a block of land as little as 125 square metres. 
So if you're going to go to the edge of the city, you don't want to like a 200 square meter block of land. You want something with a little bit more girth. And the magic number today is around 400 square meters. Sometimes you have to compromise because of orientation and uh, aspects and views. But really that sort of 350 to 450 size is, is where you want to be, right? And I think further out, you want to be closer to that 400 square meter range to make sure you're building a home, which fundamentally the demographic is looking for as they scoot out to the city fringe. The other thing I think you should look for when considering a property purchase and a build on the city fringe, and I will talk about building as uh, the podcast unfolds, but I think you need to be around good amenity and transport nodes. Buying on the city fringe means you're far away from obviously the city and sometimes far away from many of the sub-cities in our major metropolitan areas. So having good transport allows you really the opportunity to connect. And demand will always use transport. I know COVID's come along and everyone's been working from home, but I'm telling you, it does appear most people in the city I live in, Sydney, are now back in the CBD doing what they did prior to what was occur- what occurred in 2020. We will live in the digital world, both physical and digital. And so if you are going to buy at the edge of a city as an investor, you want to make sure there's some good mobility score. In other words, someone can leave their house and perhaps connect to the train to move about, right? Other things you can look for when buying on the edge of the city is actually where the middle ring is. Now, I love doing this. In fact, there's a suburb in Melbourne called Greenvale where about four or five years ago, we found that suburb and just fell in love with it. It's right next to the airport in um, Melbourne. And back then, you know, we were finding deals at like $480,000, but it was kind of considered the edge of Melbourne. And it was about 25 kilometers to the city. But what's so fascinating about Greenvale is you leave Greenvale and you enter Tullamarine and you're fundamentally in the middle ring of Melbourne. So when you can find a suburb which is fundamentally leaving the outer ring and becoming part of the middle ring, you start to find gold. And Greenvale is a good example. Greenvale today really should be part of the middle ring of Melbourne, whereas Mickleham is now the outer ring of the northern part of Melbourne. And it does actually extend even further. But when we think of the edge of the city, if we can find the edge and see it's getting swallowed, and now there is places even further and further afield compared to where we're looking, you know that your outer ring area, which you're maybe paying an outer ring price for, is actually being converted to the middle ring. This is where the arbitrage of value comes into place because obviously people will pay more for the middle ring than the outer ring. And in Greenvale's case, you know, five years later, a $500,000 property is now $750,000, dollars 
Um, you probably can sneak in one for like 730 but it's gone up hundreds of thousands of dollars. Why? Because people now have to go further than Greenvale to find a house and land community. So if you want to make money out of this stuff, you've got to start to think how the society forms around it. First formation, how society forms of outer ring land communities is size. They want, a, they want a good block of land. Second thing is they want to feel connected. They want to be able to drive somewhere quite quickly. They want to be able to um, travel fairly quickly as well. So in Greenvale's case, it was right on the freeway, right next to the airport. So it's quite a um, quick commute using the road system of Melbourne. And it obviously gets got swallowed by the middle ring and now there's places further and further out. Instead of today that you can buy for $500,000 there, Greenvale, 25 kilometres north of the CBD next to Melbourne Airport, you have to go further and further. Another five, seven, eight kilometres further and you will find really the start of the edge of the outer ring. So there are some tips here, right? I hope you're getting it. If we're going to buy land, we've got to, um, we can't just, um, you know, throw a dart at the dartboard because there's plenty of weird cow paddocks with houses on it. And we don't want a weird cow paddock with a house on it. Remember, when we look at real estate on the outer edge, there are some great communities for forming. And these are quite often known as master plan communities and I think the better name for a master plan community is an aspirational community. Remember, three forms of money in real estate. Aspirational, discretionary, and afford affordability. When we buy real estate in the affordability zone, we have to be very, very careful that it is not going to go backwards, it's going to go forwards. Beneath affordability is the inequality marketplace. And quite often on the urban edge, some land communities will go backwards and fall into inequality. Lots of tenants, um, you drive through them and you see like the kid sitting in the garage on the sofa smoking a bong. You're like, what the hell is going on? What's, what's this community about? There's bong smokers in the garage. Instead of going through an aspirational community, a master plan community, and seeing great uh, streetscapes, beautiful houses, a mixed design of covenants, uh, big houses, smaller houses, um, double-storey houses, single-storey houses, underpower, uh, underground power lines, beautiful green space, lots of trees. And again... People probably pay a little bit more to get into the aspirational planned communities and rightly so. They are very well maintained and they are absolutely aspirational. So I absolutely think people can make money and I've seen people make so much money going out to the urban edge of cities and buying land that is absolutely on its way to becoming an aspirational community. Remember, when it comes to land communities, they are all about population hotspots. That's the purpose of them. 
The Australian government has a business plan by mid-century. It wants uh, 40 million people. Those people have to live somewhere. And the great Australian dream is to live in a house. And when you think about that, that means land has to open up because you fundamentally will struggle to build more housing in old established communities. And we will get to the old established communities and building as well because that in itself is absolutely very profitable for many property investors. Remember, um, land or planned land, land at the urban edge of our cities is quite often something that big publicly listed companies offer in cooperation with state governments. They almost identify where they can house 20, 30, 50,000 people and get set going to work building these communities. So when it comes to the idea of buying in a planned land community or an urban edge community, you want to make sure it is part of the town plan and the population growth of those cities. And that's quite often you'll see those areas start to get better services and better roads and better rail line networks sent to them and they start to become very successful. Again, if you're going to put 20,000 people on the edge of the city and then you do not offer them the train, well, you're going to start to see that the, the traffic jams in that local community alone will be horrendous. People will be stuck for 30 to 40 minutes just leaving their suburb before they even find the freeway to connect to commerce around, obviously, the moving parts of the city. I think, obviously, we talk a lot about work from home, but let's face it, there are only just so many office workers who do laptop work. There are all sorts of logistic businesses across our big cities which require people to do all sorts of jobs. When it comes to choosing a house and land community, I'm a big believer that you must have a good level of open space, parks, trees, walking tracks and playgrounds. Again, there are some house and land communities where you go to them and you cannot find a tree. You're like, where's the tree? How hot are those communities on a hot summer's day when there's no shade? They would be horrible places to live and they almost fall into this puzzle of future inequity. However, some land communities at the edge of our cities are building the most spectacular parklands and bike tracks and mountain biking tracks and marinas and playgrounds. And you just know owning real estate in those suburbs will actually evolve to being very aspirational into the future as the green space will provide for future growth. People will pay more to live near space and parks and walkways and lakes and, and, and marinas. And knowing there's a tree count in those neighbourhoods absolutely means future gold. And as I say, people going from the affordable belt to the aspirational belt. Not from the affordable belt to the inequality belt. We want to move our real estate up the chain. 
And quite often that means even when we do buy in an aspirational suburb, it can become a discretionary suburb. It can become a discretionary belt. The suburb itself gets hijacked by discretionary money and people pay bucket loads for it. And right now you're probably seeing that in the middle ring of our suburbs around our major capital cities. Those suburbs are skyrocketing in value because they're being hijacked by people with a bucket load of money. So remember, we've got money which is connected to society, inequality money. We've got aspirational money. We've got discretionary money and we've got affordability money. When it comes to going to the edge of the city, we're going to have to buy affordability. That's why we also want to make sure we've got a really good property, one of the better houses in that neighbourhood, so we don't pick up the inequality tenant. When you think about people living on the edge of the city, they are usually doing it as tenants because they're struggling to make ends meet. So if you buy a weird small house uh, on the edge of the city, you're going to get a weird tenant. However, if you buy a beautiful big family home on the edge of the city, quite often you even get tenants who are other people looking to move to that neighbourhood and potentially even building a house themselves. The seventh thing to consider when it comes to house and land, urban edge communities, urban sprawl, is walkability. Yeah, it seems crazy to think so, right? Walkability. When we often think of walkability, we think of perhaps suburbs which are close to the city, which are literally walkable, delightful neighbourhoods. When you think of the best suburb in Australia that gets the highest walk score, usually it's Fitzroy in Melbourne. It scores like 99 out of 100. And it's got so much or so many things to do when it comes to walking. However, when we think of land communities, we quite often discard the idea that anyone will walk. In other words, most people will use their car to get about. But hang on a minute. There are some great land communities where you can walk, where you can absolutely get out of your house, grab your kids, put them on bicycles, you walk alongside them if they're little tackers, and walk to the local town centre, the local shops. And when you think about how Australians and Kiwis grew up, we grew up, using a Kiwi term, walking to the dairy. We walked to the local grocery shop. That was part of the suburban fabric of society. And absolutely, you can find land communities and great house and land deals where you can still walk to that atmosphere. You're walkable to the park. You're walkable to the shops. You can grab your uh, cricket bat and cricket ball and go walk down to the playground and have a, have a game. You know, this is what these communities need to be about. And many of them are absolutely that. However, a lot of investors just get uh, this idea that they should go out and buy a house and land package without really factoring in the behavioural logic around what actually that area has to offer for its residents. The better the amenity for residents, the better the walkability, the better the walkability, the better the price your real estate's going to be into the future. Remember, 
land communities which are isolated, which you simply have to drive to to qualify, which absolutely have no amenity, nothing really going for them, will probably fall into the inequality zone. We want to pop out the other side, the aspirational zone. And so the final little tip is to make sure your real estate is obviously connected to commerce because people do have to work in nearby major centres and uh, the closer your land is to those major commerce precincts, knowledge hubs, CBDs, um, you know, satellite um, commerce areas, smaller CBDs, then of course the people who live there are going to be able to uh, use your home and rent it to go to their work. And that is a real, real winner when it comes to finding this great little house and land package. Remember, this genre has been around for a long time. And many people will tell you, oh, you know, house and land community, you're never going to make money. That is absolutely bonkers. People make a lot of money out of house and land communities. Many land communities go up in value. What you need to comprehend though, land communities are all new. So everyone in them has a new mortgage. Because everyone has a new mortgage in them, you want to make sure you're buying alongside other owner-occupiers. There is two versions of land communities. One where fundamentally um, investors buy in to sell out the land community. And then other ones which are very aspirational where home buyers buy in and maybe if you're lucky, 20 or maybe 30% investors get to buy into that particular uh, land community. In other words, you don't want to buy a land community which is full of other investors. There's a big reason why. Everyone is starting a mortgage on the same day if you do that. And it just takes one person to buckle and sell properties for a loss and all of a sudden, the value proposition of that land community just drops. The other thing is, of course, you end up with a complete society of tenants. And as I've alluded to, and I don't want to sound rude, but people renting on the edge of the city are renting because they're broke. And that's when you drive through those communities, which are fundamentally all tenants, you see the 18-year-old who hasn't got the job, who never went to TAFE, who uh, fundamentally is sitting on his couch in his garage having a bong. That is not how to go and buy real estate. So we need to be very, very clear about this. If you can get into the owner-occupier communities, you're going to make money. Because even though everyone's starting a mortgage relatively around the same period, homeowners hunker down longer than investors do. And that's why it's really, really good to buy in a home um, community with owner-occupiers as your neighbours. Now, you might ask, well, isn't the same logic when you go into, um, you know, an apartment complex and there's investors in there? And, well, quite often if you were, for example, buying in the um, uh, old established neighbourhoods where apartment complex often are, the ratio of homeowners in those suburbs is just naturally much higher because they've been trading for 200 years. Remember, outer edge areas have been trading for five minutes. 
So people in those areas have had loans for five minutes as opposed to if you go to the inner ring or the middle ring. I mean, some properties date back here in Australia to literally the first fleet. So we've, we've, you've got debt-free people in those old established economies. In the new established economies, less so, right? So again, one of the big lessons and takeaways here is if you're going to go to the urban edge, you want the aspiration money. That's the point of the urban edge. You want to end up buying a growth story. And again, you can make some really sizable levels of capital growth when it comes to making some money out of building a project home. Now, I'm mindful of time. I think we need to get moving to the second type of land to build on, which really does follow the rare earth effect, infill. Infill, yes, land which is closer to the city, which is being backfilled or is often referred to as infill. When we think about building new in old established suburbs, there's really two ways to go about doing that. One is to knock down a tired old home and replace it with a brand new home. And the second way is to find some existing land or like an old tennis court um, a new subdivision, a small subdivision, which is fundamentally in the middle ring. And I really call the middle ring of real estate a wealth shelf. It is a wealth shelf. If you go to most middle ring suburbs of our big cities, there is a lot of money, a lot of older money in those suburbs. And getting in those suburbs is really a proven way of creating capital growth over the shorter, medium, and quite often the longer term in real estate. Remember, infill is often done in million-dollar suburbs where you find some dirt to build on. And again, it's usually a pretty rare little occurrence, and that's why we often call this strategy the rare earth strategy. The fact that the odd subdivision rears, rears up and... Um, and, and uh, becomes available, absolutely goldmine for investors. Now, I recently, as an armchair developer, um, put a development together. What is armchair developing? Armchair developing is fundamentally a 20 of us team up and uh, we go find a deal which we couldn't otherwise buy ourselves because it's too expensive. And then we fundamentally create, uh, obviously, a bit of a speculation by creating a highest and better use for that deal and trying to make money as a developer. Now, recently, you know, I found some land in inner Brisbane and was able to put together 32 blocks of land which formed a small little subdivision 11 kilometres from Brisbane CBD. Those land lots obviously were very popular with locals and many investors and people in the joint venture alike because how often do you find 32 blocks of land 11 kilometers from Brisbane CBD that are flat that you can absolutely build on and really probably Brisbane still to this day is what I would call the last major urban area 
on the eastern seaboard as a CBD or as a major city where there's little bits of land which you can get your hands on, which is fast disappearing when it comes to building in the middle ring infield. Very, very difficult in Sydney, very, very difficult in Melbourne. In Melbourne and Sydney, you would have to typically knock down and rebuild. In Brisbane, you can knock down and rebuild or you can find um, something that's pretty rare, but it's, it's still out there. Even though it's the rare earth strategy, you can still find little pieces of it. And I tell you what, as a buy and hold strategy for many people, it is such a powerful strategy. I mean, think about it. If you can buy and build a brand new home for eight, $900,000, 11 kilometers to the CBD of Brisbane, I mean, how valuable will that be in 20 years' time? You can't tell me a seven, eight, nine hundred thousand dollars brand new home is not going to be worth. 1.2, 1.3, 1.5, that close to the city in 15 years. It makes no sense to me that it wouldn't. I have not come across anyone who can argue differently. And if you can, by all means, take up the argument with me because I cannot see any logic which says that if you build new in the middle ring of Brisbane and you come in at a very good price, which is comparable to the secondhand marketplace, you're not going to see capital growth. So I tell you what, when it comes to infill, you've got to think local. Remember, the outer edge is all about understanding if the area is going to become aspirational, understanding that there is a good level of mobility, understanding that we want a big block of land. We don't want a small block of land. We want a big block of land out on the outer shelf of the city. But when we're in the middle, we can certainly um, uh, start to to explore smaller blocks, 300 square metre blocks, smaller. Uh, We can think about that the build has got to be probably a big part of the motivator, of the value of the proposition of, of the middle ring. So I think when it comes to the middle ring, you have to be a little bit of a connoisseur when it comes to understanding land because you're not dealing with something that's mastered and mapped out. When you go out to the edge of the city to these sort of master plan communities, it's very um, vanilla as to the process. Um, The entire community is being activated at one time, new stage releases are being built and the process is arguably just a lot simpler. When you're buying an individual piece of land in the middle ring of a city, you got to think about access, think about drainage, contours. Uh, you got to think about, is it a family-orientated summit, the demographic makeup of the neighbourhood? You've got to think of the orientation of the house. So there is a lot of things that you fundamentally need to consider when it comes to uh, building in the middle ring. But I tell you what, without question, you can absolutely employ architects and draftspeople to start to, to map this stuff out with you. and You'll end up in a place where you've got something very valuable that rents really well that needs no future capital cost for 20 plus years 
and you're well on your way to, to making capital growth. Remember, with land, it's middle or outer. Uh, it's not often you get the inner ring, so we won't bother talking about that. But I do believe there is a bit of a science when it comes to making money out of building and activating some land and doing what is commonly known as a knockdown rebuild or a house and land package. I think the first thing to consider is that build costs also tend to go up. So quite often we can make money by understanding that the future of housing is going to inflate when it comes to the cost to build. And if we own something that is going to have around a 20-year lifespan without putting extra capital costs in to prop it up, and of course capital costs um, you know, are really heavily intensive on dying stock, dysfunctional stock, um, stock which needs to be demolished, needs a lot of capital. You need to spend money to keep it alive. However, obviously, brand new real estate today has got a really good lifespan. It's got 20 years, really, before you need to worry about it. Um, and then your capital costs will start. So knowing that for the next, you know, 20-odd years, you've got something where fundamentally, yeah, you'll have, um, you know, the odd repair and maintenance, but it won't depreciate to the point where you've got to chuck hundreds of thousands of dollars at it, means that you sit in the new section of the property marketplace. As new properties inflate, as the cost to build those new properties come to marketplace, you're almost piggybacking off their extra costs. So by way of example, you know, a house might cost $300,000 to build for a certain square metre size um, with XYZ inclusions. That same house perhaps next year will cost 305000 Then the year after that, 310000 Then the year after that, 315000 Eventually, you've got a spread, which of course works in your favour because you still sit in the new section of the marketplace. The other thing I think is really important is land prices, right? In middle ring neighbourhoods, there isn't a shortage of available land and hence usually it comes at a premium. When we think about going to the outer communities, quite often we think, well, those communities' land uh, is abundant. And when you drive out there, quite often you start to go, wow, there's just land everywhere. There's, there's paddocks and wow, this thing can go forever. And in some respects that's true, but the production line of real estate quite often doesn't work like that. In other words, to title real estate, to rezone it, to title it, to turn it from semi-rural to rural to rural to residential can take a long period of time. This is where quite often the speed limit of house and land communities is quite often um, almost like engineered to create equity because... Land developers rarely ever oversupply a land community. They control land production based on the amount of demand in the marketplace rather than fundamentally releasing it and um, having to reduce the price to get rid of it. They fundamentally 
work it like this. They will wait till there's 30 buyers to uh, who have inquired that are absolutely ready to buy as home buyers in a neighborhood. Then they release the land. They do not release the land, then find the buyers. So it is an interesting dynamic when compared quite often um, to many other parts of the marketplace. It is kind of manufactured in a way which virtually does push up land prices. And again, as communities tend to disappear and become more accepted to the middle mainstream, their prices and stages tend to climb in value. And quite often in a land community at the urban edge, you might have 20 land releases and from stage one to stage 20, you can see incremental increases of like $5,000 a stage. And of course, by the time the last stage comes around, some four years after the first stage, prices have risen and of course, people are making equity if they got into those communities early in the piece simply by watching the publicly listed companies manipulate the equity in those particular land communities. And again, if they put the right amenity in and the right look and feel and it's a right community, people will pay for it. And in some respects, there's early adopters who get a better price. And then there's uh, people who like to know the schools are in place and the parklands are working and there is a community there and they come in at the later stages and pay a premium, but they're cool with that as well because they're home buyers. As an investor, we want to position ourselves so we can go for that ride and get that capital growth. I tell you what, when it comes to housing, I think another pillar is there is always fairly good growth in housing. People in Australia will always, and New Zealand, have an affiliation with housing. And as we know, families, um, you know, much prefer to live in a house. And of course, many of the best land communities are attracting some of the best aspirational families. And of course, as a result, you're getting housing growth. And in a downturn, houses do tend to hold their value. As I say, you rarely hear of an oversupplied housing marketplace. It's something where you hardly ever hear anything negative about. When was the last time you read the paper and it was like, yeah, we've got, uh, you know, a thousand houses we can't sell. I mean, come on, right? So again, the growth can be really, really good, but we've just got to make sure we're not going into the wrong benchmark of the marketplace we're not going into a heavily investor orientated neighborhood where really we've got you know joe and his bong in the garage so what we what we want when we buy in a you know a, a new house we don't want to necessarily overcapitalize and be the best but we certainly don't want to undercapitalize and be the worst we want to be in the middle right and that quite often means in uh, established communities in the middle ring and in the outer ring, we're fundamentally sitting in a sweet spot where we get lifted up by the better homes. The worst homes, as I say, just I think particularly even at the urban edge, you don't want a small home because people move there for space. 
Owner occupiers move there for space. Maybe great for a tenant, but we don't want to position our assets to the tenant market. We want to position our assets to the capital growth marketplace. The cool thing about buying land and then building as well is you get some stamp duty concessions here in Australia. You're obviously just paying on the land component as opposed to the complete package component, which is awesome. You obviously still get some great depreciation benefits. And, you know, quite often if you are building, you can capitalise your holding costs. So there's some great ways to, to get into the housing marketplace in Australia. And I think many property investors need to own some houses in their portfolio. I personally don't think you only need houses in your portfolio because some of the rental returns closer to the city and smaller dwellings can be fantastic for later in life when you want to live off income. However, some great growth to build your foundation can come from the housing marketplace. And without question, I think there is a bit of a science around building and designing a nice home, which is going to catch the wave of capital, capital growth. Now, I would encourage you to listen to my Secret Language of Real Estate podcast. Go back like, I don't know how many podcasts, 20 podcasts. And um, you know what? You'll, you'll hear about what motivates the psychology of home buyers when it comes to understanding uh, you know, what they look for in builds and why they end up paying a lot of money down the track. So when you design your home, you can design something which is going to inspire people. Homes can be like artwork and if you inspire people as art inspires us, you're absolutely going to be on the right way. You do not want to build just a boring homogenous home. And the cool thing is when you do build a home, you've got a solid starting point. It's a little bit different to renovating where sometimes you kind of don't know where to start and, you know, should you do the electrics first? You'd, you've, you're spending money on um, non-profit items like gutters and roofing. When it comes to knockdown rebuild or even building from the beginning, you've got a solid starting point. So you can absolutely price it up to the dollar and put together a contract with a builder which fundamentally meets the brief. And I think that's probably the best thing about building is home buyers today want great layouts and designs. They want light interiors, functional kitchens, designer bathrooms, great outdoor areas. Uh, they want um, great decking. They want smart homes. They want low maintenance homes. And brand new homes absolutely allow people to get this kind of sweet spot of what they want to own, right? And for me, like, I've made money out of building house and land packages. I, I absolutely have, have killed it over the years of finding the sweet spot of where really the middle ring is run down and just going that extra little bit further, you leave the rundown renovated market but enter the brand new housing market and it's only five kilometers from the rundown market. And all of a sudden you see this big shift that people go, you know what? I don't want to buy a weird old home and try and convert it from a one bathroom to a three bathroom. I just want to go and design a really good property. And that is absolutely the benefit of building. Because if you um, don't rush into it and you think through it, you're going to end up in a place 
which is incredibly, incredibly valuable into the future. When you're putting your build terms together, you do, however, want to keep the builder accountable. And quite often in the industry, we call it liquidated damages. If the build is not built on time, the builder needs to pay you for the inconvenience of holding that land and paying a mortgage on it whilst they are building on your land. And again, like builders can suffer all sorts of problems. They can suffer rain delays. They can hit rock. They can have unexpected cost blowouts in their supply chains. You do not want them passing all of those extra burdens onto you. And so quite often you need to understand a little bit of contract law so you can give the builder some reassurance that you're not going to um, you're not going to try and, I guess, pin them down to something which is not commercially viable, but pinning them down to something where you don't end up paying for their slackness is really the best thing you can do. And again, quite often, too many property investors sign up to the wrong house and land or wrong build contract, end up in a place where they've lost the build, the build has disappeared, builds don't get done on time, um, it takes years to build a home instead of weeks and of course you do end up hearing some of these construction delay horror stories which occur out in the marketplace. Certainly happened to me, I've got the lashes on the back, I understand it and um, without question I know now that uh, you know you want some watertight contracts when you enter into a really good build. I really love new builds because you end up with a structural warranty, a modern look, a very functional home. You can add sustainability features and you can create smart homes. And smart homes, in my view, is very much the future of real estate. Hey, thanks so much for listening. Um, I hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks for taking the time to listen to my podcast. I really appreciate everyone listening. I know you could be doing anything with your time today and you've chosen to spend that with me. I'm internally grateful for your earballs. Um, hey, if you feel like leaving me a review or uh, maybe reviewing Hannah the dog, say, we love you, Hannah, we miss you. Hey, whack it on my iTunes, uh, whack it on the podcast. Thanks for your time. I will catch you soon on the next instalment of The Urban Property Investor. Thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on YouTube. And I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of the Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.